Good morning. It is so good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Jonathan. I am so grateful that you have joined us here today. Uh, whether you've been here before or whether this is your first time, I am grateful that you are here today. Now, in the song that we sang just a few songs earlier, Come Thou Fount, there's this line in there, and it talks about, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, now, when I was a child, I always wondered why we were singing songs in the middle of the year about Ebenezer Scrooge. But that is not what this song is talking about. In fact, it's pointing back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, where Samuel sets a stone that he calls Ebenezer. And it reminds him of the faithfulness and the deliverance of God. So every time that they walked past it, they remembered how God had been faithful and how God had delivered his people. And they recognized and they remembered the past faithfulness of God so they could recognize his future faithfulness. Well, Natalie and I, we married when we were incredibly young, and I was in seminary full-time and worked part-time at a church, and Natalie had a job on campus at the seminary, and it paid for my school as well as gave her a paycheck, and we weren't wealthy by any means, but we could make the ends meet when we first got married, and then everything changed seven months after we got married because we found out that we were having a baby girl. And after she was born, Natalie went back to work for a few months, but she strongly desired to be at home with her baby girl. And I strongly desired as her husband to have the desires of her heart. But as a husband, I was miserable because financially we could not make it. And it was a hard time for me as a husband, and it was a hard time for her as a mother because she desired to be with her baby at home. And even with taking on a second job, it would not be enough to pay for my school and to make up for her salary. And so I pleaded with God, God, would you make a way? And in December, I felt a peace from God that he was going to provide. And I owned an insane amount of guitars at that point. And so I began to sell guitars left and right to pad our savings account. And we made a plan. But I still remember pleading with the Lord Hey, would you let us know that you're going to take care of us? Would you confirm that you're going to provide and take care of us over this season? And that evening, I went to the mailbox. And I'm telling you, this is the truth. I went to the mailbox that evening, and there was an envelope in there, a little white envelope with no return address and nothing else written in there except there was $400 cash in it. And at that time, this was huge because that was almost a month's rent for us. And it was like God was saying, hey, I hear you. I understand, and I'm going to take care of you. But if that wasn't enough, a week later, another envelope came, a plain white envelope with no return address, and it had $200 cash inside. And we had a full month's rent at this entire time. And with the guitars that I had sold, we knew that we could survive at least for three months uh, for God to make another plan. Uh, but we didn't know how my school was going to be paid for. But we knew that God was giving us the green light for Natalie to go in and to resign from her job at the seminary. And what happened next is something that still floors me. So Natalie went into her boss's office to turn in her two weeks and to resign and tell her boss that she was going to come at home and be with her baby. And her boss said, well, what is your husband going to do to pay for his school? And she said, well, we don't know, but we're trusting that God is going to provide. And her boss looked at her and he said, well, I just had someone that came in a few hours earlier and he quit his job. And it's a job that uh, is a little bit higher up, and it comes with a pay raise from what you make, and it comes with full-time benefits, health insurance, and retirement, and it will pay for his school. And her boss looked at her and said, do you think that's something that your husband would be interested in? And Natalie says, absolutely, he will take it. 
<laughs> right after that, Natalie called me and she was panicked and she told me, so I got you a new job and you start in two weeks after Christmas. And to this day in our marriage, that is our Ebenezer, those envelopes and how God worked at that moment in her boss's office. We remember that God provided. God told us that he would and he did. And this is how we remember the faithfulness of God so we can look for and we can lean on and we can recognize his future faithfulness. And I'm sure we all have stories like that in our lives that we could spend hours just sharing and reminiscing the faithfulness of God. We all have Ebenezer's in our lives that we can look back upon and we can see the clear hand of the faithfulness of God. So today in the book of Esther, we're going to see a story of God's faithfulness. And we're going to recognize that we should remember the past faithfulness of God so that we can look for and we can lean on and we can recognize his future faithfulness. So today, after 10 weeks, we're concluding the book of Esther. And I've loved walking through this book. And through this book, we've seen a story that although it doesn't mention God by name, it's all about him. It's about his sovereignty, and it's about his control over all things, and his faithfulness to his people. And in Esther, we were introduced to a self-centered and an unwise, egotistical king, King Ahasuerus, who declared his greatness for everyone to see, but then he couldn't even reign over his own household, and so he had to banish his queen, and then he vowed to find someone better than her. And through this really dark scene, we saw an orphan Jewish girl, Esther, who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and she was trafficked and taken from her home. But through the providence of God, she was named the queen over this Persian empire. And then we met Haman, the villain of our story and the enemy of the Jews, who just so happened to be the second man in charge behind King Ahasuerus. And after Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, Haman convinced the king to allow an edict to be out sent out to uh, the entire kingdom that all the Jews would be killed and annihilated and destroyed in 11 months and leaving the entire kingdom in confusion. And we were wondering, what are you doing, God? What is going on in this story? And then in chapter 6 and 7, we saw that God turned everything upside down. And Mordecai was rewarded for his faithfulness to the king. And Esther was saved from the plot against the Jews. And Haman was killed on the gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai upon. And then just last week in chapter 8, we saw that Esther was given all the belongings of Haman to which she turned over to Mordecai. And the king found out that Mordecai was Esther's cousin and named him the vice president of sorts in this kingdom. He was the second man in charge and he placed the signet ring on his finger. So Mordecai were saved and secure like we saw last week. But Esther was not saved and satisfied. Esther once again had a heart of compassion that was used by God. And she asked that a second edict, a greater edict, be sent out. An edict of salvation for the Jews who were deemed for destruction. And we saw that this edict was sent out in a hurry. But we were left wondering at the end of chapter 8 last week, did this edict get out in time? Would the people of God be saved and secure like Esther and Mordecai were? And today, in the conclusion of our story, we'll see how God has flipped everything upside down and how he will finally rescue his people and how they will remember his faithfulness. So if you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to the small book of Esther. And we'll be in chapters 9 and 10 today. If that sounds like a lot of reading, it is. 
But then also notice chapter 10 is only three verses. So it is a lot of reading and a lot of scripture today, and we will read it all. uh, But we'll start with just reading verse 1 of chapter 9. So look at Esther uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And let's read that now. It says this, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jew hoped to gain mastery over him, over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, this is the day that the Jews have feared, and it has finally arrived. This is the day that Haman cast the dice, the purr to allow fate, which turned out to be the sovereignty of God, to choose this very day. This is the day that the first edict of Haman was sent out to annihilate and kill all of the Jews. And this is the date that the second edict of Mordecai was sent out to give the Jews and allow to fight back as if, as for self-defense. It's almost as if everything has been pointing to this very date. But just like in life, the beauty has been in the journey. And on this day, it's almost anticlimactic at this point. Those who had hoped to dominate and destroy the Jews themselves instead were destroyed. In fact, the author simply says this, the reverse occurred. They had hoped to dominate and destroy, but instead the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is almost like those TV shows that you watch where they show you the end of what's going to happen and then they tell you how they got there. So the author's telling us up front, hey, this was no question God's people won. The reverse had occurred and it continued, and God's people win. We see that clearly in verse 1. The author tells us, now that I've told you that they've won, now let me tell you the details of how this great reversal played out. And then let me tell you the details of how this great reverse was celebrated. But long story short, God's people win. Let's continue looking in verses 2 through 16 to see the details of how this great reversal uh, occurred and to see this great reversal described in verses 2 through 16. It says this, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought, to do, sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful, and the Jews struck all of their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Parantha and Aldea and Aridiatha and Parmashtha and Arisha and Aridia and Vajatha. And the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 700, I mean, 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done to the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. 
And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, Well, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to also do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now there is a lot going on here. We don't have time to get into all of the details today, but I do want us to walk through this. What's occurring here? Well, in verse 2, we see that because of the edict of Mordecai, the Jews have been able to gather and to prepare uh, since the edict of Mordecai had been published months before this day. And so they had time to prepare for this battle. And we can see the clear hand of God demonstrated in these verses that there are those who sought to bring harm to the Jews and yet no one could stand against them. This doesn't mean that the enemies of the Jews didn't attack them. They did, but no one could win against the Jews. They didn't stand a chance against God's people. And notice even the officials and the satraps and the governors, they recognized this and they were like, nope, hey, we're going to side with Mordecai on this. Uh, We've seen what happened to Haman and we've seen what happens to those who go against the God that uh, Mordecai serves uh, because we've seen what God can do. And so we're going to side with Mordecai. We're not going to go against him. We also see that Mordecai was great and he was feared and he had fame throughout this kingdom. And this is a man, think about this, who just a few chapters earlier in our story was a man who was in sackcloth and ashes, and he was pleading before God for help. And look how God has turned everything upside down. Haman had demanded that people feared him. Haman had demanded that people declare that he was great and know his name. But Mordecai fell at the feet of the one who was all-powerful, and God instated the desires of Haman's heart to the one who had a heart for God. Let this be a lesson for us all. We can't do it, but won't God do it? God can do the impossible. And we see evidence of it over and over and over in this story. In every nook and cranny of this story, in every crevice of this story, it screams of the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful to his people. And then we see in verse 6, the Jews have victory over their enemies and I don't know this for sure, but while 500 seems like a high number to us today in a city like Susa, it was surely a low number, and it indicates that most of the people in Susa were in support of the Jews, that they weren't going against the Jews. And the Jews also had victory over the sons of Haman, and no doubt Haman's sons had come to take revenge on Mordecai and the Jews for what had happened against their father, and they were not successful against God's people any more than their father had been. See, God is in control over all the evil in this world. Also take notice, the Jews have been given permission to take whatever it was that they wanted, to plunge the goods of those that they killed, to take the spoils of war, but they did not do so. It would have been easy for them to just take what was left behind from those that they killed, but it would not have gone unnoticed in this culture. 
where the victors were expected to do that, but they didn't do it. See, the idea of them denying themselves of what could have been easily taken would have been countercultural and it would have been remembered. It would have been proof of the upright motives of the Jews that they were operating in self-defense and there was no question what their motives were. May the same be said about us believers. May our ways and our motives be so pure that there is no question about our intentions either. And then we see in verse 11 that all of this was made known to the king. And the king says, well, if they've done this well in Susa, imagine what they've done in the other provinces. And we soon see it's 75,000 people. So then the king wasn't wrong. And then the king, in almost of an ironic way, he looks to Esther and he's like, hey, in light of what has occurred, like, surely you can't want anything else, can you? Like, surely this has pleased you. And I love this response by Esther. And she just looks at the king and she's like, well... Since you brought it up, and since you mentioned it, I got two things for you, King. First, let's do this again tomorrow in Susa. Give us another day and extend the edict. And two, let's hang up Haman's sons like ornaments so that everyone can see once again that you don't mess with the God of the Jews. Esther, by requesting the hanging of the body of Haman's sons, is showing that not only has Haman's body been disgraced, but now the entire lineage of this enemy against the Jews is also permanently disgraced. Remember, Haman was an Agagite like we saw back earlier. He was an enemy of the Jews historically. And now this is a final act of victory over this enemy of the Jews. It's a completion of what was supposed to be done in 1 Samuel 15. And after Esther's two requests, you might expect the king to say, hey, I was just kidding, like, I didn't really mean I was going to give you anything else. But the king at this point, maybe he was too frightened to say no to Queen Esther after he's seen what God has done through the Jews. So he's like, sure, whatever you want, like, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to make those two things happen for you. And we see that there were all of these people who were killed. And then the next day, uh, there were... Uh, 300 men killed in Susan. Then we see 75,000 killed throughout the entire empire. No one could stand against the people of God. We see that in detail here. So we've seen that there's this great reversal that has been declared in verse 1. And then we've seen the description of how this great reversal played out in verses 2 through 16. Now let's look in verses 17 through 32 to see how God's faithfulness was celebrated by the Jews. Let's read verse 17 through 32. And hold on, this is a lot of scripture. Well, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and they made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and they rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is to cast lots or the dice, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave the orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan and every province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent out to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. And the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And that's a lot. So what's going on here? And so in verse 17, we see that there are some spontaneous days of feasting. So there are those who have fought in battle and they're tired. And then they see the faithfulness of God. And so they rest and they feast, remembering the faithfulness of God on the day after this edict came out. And then we see those in Susa, they fought for two days. And they did the same on the third day feasting and resting and remembering the faithfulness of God. So you see that there are these two days of feasting and remembering the faithfulness of God that are spontaneous and remembering how God rescued his people in these two days. And then Mordecai notices this and he's like, hey, this is a good thing. It is a good thing to remember the faithfulness of God. So Mordecai says, well, let's inaugurate this and let's make this official and let's make this a feast called the Feast of Purim to remember the faithfulness of God, how he delivered his people and how he delivered the Jews from his enemies and delivered them from this edict of death so that there would be two days of feasting and gladness, remembering and celebrating the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God and that this would be kept throughout every generation. And this feast is still kept today among Jews. And since it follows the Hebrew calendar, it changes uh, every year. But this coming year, uh, it'll be celebrated March the 6th and March the 7th by those who are Jewish. And during this time, they'll do exactly what is written here. Uh, they'll give gifts and uh, they'll celebrate and they'll remember the faithfulness of God. And they eat these three-cornered cookies that are filled, or pastry filled with fruit. And they say they look like the hat of Haman. And so uh, they eat this cookie and uh, remember their defeat over the enemy of God. And how God's faithfulness and sovereignty caused this to be so. So if you have friends who are Jewish or family members, you might know this is that they still celebrate this festival named after the dice or the purr that even the sovereignty of God is in control over. It is a good thing to remember and to feast on the faithfulness of God. Let's continue reading chapter 3 to finish our story for today. It's just three verses. It says this. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. 
and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all of his people. So following this amazing miracle of God that we've seen throughout the book of Esther. We've seen God rescue his people and we've seen him save them from this edict of death. We've seen him flip everything upside down to cause this great reversal to stand with his people so that no one could stand against them on this day. And then we're told they got a tax hike. I mean, what in the world? Like, why is this here? Why are we told this? I mean, I guess that's life. Like, taxes go up. But why are we told this at this point in the story? I just couldn't get over that this week. Why is this here? Then I thought, well, this reminds us that while so much has occurred in this story, and while so much has changed, there is still this self-centered and unwise and sinful man leading this country, King Ahasuerus. Then we see in verse 2 that while King Ahasuerus was still in charge, Mordecai, God's man is still second in charge to King Ahasuerus. He was known and he was honored and popular and he fought for the Lord's will, but he was still the second man in charge. So through this story of the sovereignty of God, of clearly seeing the faithfulness of God, of seeing how God has flipped everything upside down, there's still a lot that has not changed. A wicked man is still ruling over this dark and this sinful world. In the book of Esther... We've seen the story of a wicked king, of a banished queen, of a Jewish orphan crowned a queen. We've seen a wicked enemy of the Jews. And then we've seen a man who refused to bow down to the enemy of the Jews. And then we saw an order sent out for a destruction of the Jews. And then everything changed. We saw the sovereignty of God, which caused a case of insomnia for the king that was used to flip everything upside down in this great reversal. And then we see the man who refused to be bowed down is elevated by the king. And then we see the wicked enemy of the Jews is destroyed. And then we see the man who refused to bow down is elevated and the second man in charge. And then we see a new and a greater edict is sent out for the salvation of the Jews. Then we see a fight where no one can stand against the Jews. But at the end of our story, a wicked king still rules while God's man is second in charge. See, sovereign God who is faithful over his people. And he's sovereign, he's faithful, even in a dark and a sinful world. That's the story of Esther. And I've loved walking through this book of Esther scene by scene. And I'm continually amazed at how when we take time to carefully walk through God's word, the richness and the depth of understanding that we gain of who God is and what he calls us to do as followers of him. So through this text, through our story today, what is it that God is calling us to do? What can we observe from this story that we can apply to our own lives? Well, our first observation today is this. We have the hope of Jesus Christ. In our story today through the book of Esther, we saw that much had changed but yet not much had changed. At the end of our story, there was a tax hike and the man who was the wicked king is still the same self-centered and unwise and egotistical king that we were met with at the beginning of the book of Esther. 
And while much has changed, much has stayed the same. The Jews of this story in the book of Esther were still in a dark and sinful world. They still had the hope and the sovereignty and control of God, but they were still having to offer sacrifices for their sins. And they were still in a world of darkness, and they still didn't have a clear understanding and knowledge of the light. They were living in the reality of John chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, which says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. See, the Jews of this day, they didn't have a clear understanding and knowledge of the light of Jesus Christ. Today, we live in a dark and sinful world. And we still have hope and we trust in the sovereignty of God and the control of God. But today, we now have a clear understanding and knowledge of the light. And we're living in the reality of John chapter 8, verse 12. It says this, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world. See, today, praise God, we know the light of the world, and we know that we have hope, and we're not trusting in the unknown, but we have a Savior named Jesus Christ to set our hope upon. Like we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And today, we remember And we celebrate that we have hope in Jesus Christ. That there is a God who created you and I. He created everything that we can see and we can touch and we can feel. And God cannot be associated with sin. But yet all of us are sinners. All of us have lied. We've stolen. We've cheated. We've lusted. We've done something that separates us from a God who is holy and who is perfect. We know that that's a problem because we're separated from the God who loves us and created us. But today we know that there is hope and his name is Jesus. That God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby who was fully God and fully man. And he lived a fully perfect sinless life here on earth. But yet he went to a cross and he died for our sins. So that three day, And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. So that today we can be forgiven and we can be reconciled with God and we can be reunited with the God who loves us and the God who created us in this life and in the next. If we repent of our sins, if we believe in Jesus and we follow him, then we can be saved. See, today we know that there is hope and his name is Jesus. Today we have hope. We know the light of the world. The truth is this. Today, we have a great hope, and his name is Jesus. So let's find our hope in him, dear Christian. Our second observation is this. Let's rest in the sovereignty of God. In our story throughout the book of Esther, we saw a story filled with much darkness for those who follow God. We saw that Esther and Mordecai came from a lineage of a people who were exiled and run off from their land. And we saw that Esther was taken from her home and what was familiar in this incredibly dark and depraved scene of trafficking. And then we saw that there was this culture that allowed for a law to be sent out for an entire race of people to be annihilated, killed, and destroyed These were certainly some dark days for those who followed God in the book of Esther. But remember that we said that even in these dark days, God was still displaying his deity. That he is God and he is on his throne and he is in control. Today, it should come as no surprise to any of us. We still live in incredibly dark and sinful days. 
Trafficking is still very real in our culture and in our community. The reality of racism is still real in our culture and in our uh, community. And even to the point of death, these things are occurring. But we need to look no further than the Russian and Ukraine war and the oppression of the peoples of North Korea and, the, and China to see that there are still plenty of dark days occurring in this world. But just as in Esther seasons of darkness... God today is still displaying his deity. He is still showing us that he is God and he is on his throne and he is still in control. Remember that in many ways, this book is an outworking of Romans 8, 28 that says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Notice this verse. It doesn't say that everything will be good for those who love him. It doesn't say everything will be easy for those who love him. But it says God is working all things out for his glory and for his good. And in the book of Esther, Mordecai and Esther were just going about their lives when everything was disrupted by the darkness that surrounded them. See how our story worked out. God was using their dark days disrupted by the darkness surrounding them to save his people And today, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how God is working through your dark days. And I don't know how God is going to work it all out for his glory and for our good. But I will tell you this. I've seen God do it before, and I know and I trust he'll do it again. Throughout his word, we see him over and over and over and over taking care of his children, taking care of his people. And I can promise you, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is in control. God is on his throne, and God is sovereign over all things. And this is a good thing. This should bring us comfort. This should bring us rest. We don't have to have it all figured out. Because we've got a God who is sitting on his throne that has it all figured out. Let's rest in him. Christian, why are you weary and heavy burdened? God is in control. He's he's worked it out for Esther. He's worked it out for Mordecai. And he's working it out for you. Find rest in God. Find hope in God. The truth is this. Even in the dark days, God is displaying his deity. Let's rest in the sovereignty of God. Our last observation for today is this. Let's feast on the faithfulness of God. Not only is God sovereign, but God is so faithful. And in our story today, we saw that the Feast of Purim was inaugurated, and it was a time of remembrance of God to relieve the Jews from their enemies, that they would forever look back on this as their Ebenezer. They would look back and they would remember the faithfulness of God. And just as I shared to open our sermon time today, we all have times of Ebenezer in our lives, points that we look back upon to remember the faithfulness of God so that we can remember what God has done And we can recognize his future faithfulness. And hear me, it is good to remember the faithfulness of God. It's good for us to remember that individually. It's also good for us to remember that corporately as a body at Mission Dorado, the faithfulness of God, of how God has been so faithful to his church right here. But it's also good for us to remember this as believers, how gracious and how good God has been, how faithful he has been to us. We see God's faithfulness All the way back in Genesis 3.15, he told us that he was bringing one who would be a serpent crusher to crush sin's hold on us that separates us from God. 
And we remember that we had a great need of him, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we were dead, that our sin was literally causing us to not be alive because we were separated from the author of life. And we remember what it is that he's done for us, that even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace we have been saved that it's nothing of our own doing, but this is a free gift of God. And this is reason to celebrate, believer faithfulness of God on display, that God was faithful to us to find us dead in our own sin and to give us life. And God is faithful, and we need to remember his faithfulness. And just as in our story, Esther's people feasted on the faithfulness of God, today we also need to feast on the faithfulness of God. To remember that God told us what he was going to do, he did it, and then he accomplished it so that we can have new life in him. See, Esther's people celebrated the faithfulness of God by giving gifts and by eating cookies that were shaped like Haman's hat to remember God's relief of them over their enemies. But today, God is also giving us a way to remember his faithfulness. To eat the bread and to remember the body broken for us of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. To drink the juice and to remember the blood of our Savior that covers our sins. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed upon us. So in a few moments, we're going to end our service in a very different way. We're going to do just that. We're going to feast on the faithfulness of God. And we're going to remember the goodness of God. And we're going to celebrate the victory that we have over sin and death by feasting on the faithfulness of God. See, the truth is this. Dear believer, God is faithful. God has been faithful and God will always be faithful. And let's remember that and let's feast on his faithfulness. So church, the truth that we've seen today in our text is this. Let's set our hope fully on Jesus Christ. Second, let's rest in the sovereignty of God. And third, let's feast on the faithfulness of God. Our big idea for today is this. We remember the past faithfulness of God so we can recognize his future faithfulness. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're here today and you have never proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe you saw Riley's profession that Jesus is Lord and maybe you've heard me share about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and you know that you don't have that same hope. Today, I want you to know that you can have that hope. You can have the hope of heaven that is coming when you die and the hope of being reunited with the God who created you and the God who loves you. You don't have to be good enough. You can come just as you are and Jesus will accept you and he will save you. In a few moments when we sing, you can come down and I can help you cry out to God for the first time. God, I believe. God, forgive me. God, I will follow you. Today, you can have this same salvation that I've been talking about today. Won't you come? Won't you come today and profess that I believe in Jesus Christ? And won't you find salvation in him alone? Maybe you're here today and you do believe in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of three things. First, believer, today, remember, our world is still dark and sinful. But today, remember that we have hope in Jesus. Would you remember that and hope in Jesus Christ alone? Believer, also, Like I said earlier, I don't know what God is doing in your life. 
I don't know what dark days are behind you, around you, or in front of you, but I do know that God is going to work it all out for his glory and for your good. I've seen him do it before, and I know and I trust he'll do it again. So today, won't you find a rest in the sovereignty of God? Believer, don't be weary and heavy burdened when we've got a Savior who's in control of all things. Let's find rest in Him. And believer, also, it is good for us to remember the faithfulness of God. In a few moments, maybe you just need to come and you need to reflect on how God has been faithful to you. Maybe you need to just come to this altar and thank Him for His faithfulness. It is okay to do that in this moment. Now, listen up. In a few moments, our service is going to look different than it normally does. Before we meet and dine with Jesus and remember and feast on His faithfulness, maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe you need to come to this altar and you need to confess your sins and ask for forgiveness to dine with the Lord with a pure heart. So during this first song that we're about to sing during the invitation, this is the time for you to come to this altar and to pray. It's also the time for you to come and to receive both the bread and the juice The bread and the juice are stacked together, so make sure you take two cups when you pick them up. The juice is on the bottom, or the bread is on the bottom, and the juice is on the top. So come during this first song and get the elements of the bread and the juice. They're at the front and in the back. If you need help, raise your hand and a deacon will help you. And after the first song that we sing here, I'll come back up and I'll instruct us to eat the bread and drink the juice together. And then we'll sing the chorus of that song together. So in this time, let's do business with the Lord. You come and you pray with me. You pray at this altar and get the elements of the Lord's Supper during this song. If you need help, just raise your hand. Somebody will help you. Church, I love you so much. And I am so grateful to be your pastor. Let's pray.